I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment. This is the show where we take scripture and break it down in various ways in order to discover the things of life within the pages of the Bible. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at a comparison that the text has for us of righteousness in various forms, and we've examined just what that means for each of us. And three weeks ago, we studied Abraham as the righteous man before God and saw how it was that Abraham became a prophet. He didn't tell the future, but rather he had revealed to him a part of what God was doing in the world. With the God of the universe being outside of the bounds of space and time, it doesn't make sense to speak of him as doing something in the past or going to do something in the future. Instead, it makes more sense to speak of what God is doing in the world. From his point of view, it's all being done in the now. And that's consistent with an understanding of biblical Hebrew. There's no past or present speech in the biblical Hebrew. But rather, there's only speech about what has been accomplished, and speech about what is still being accomplished. God does not only reveal the future to man through prophecy, but rather he reveals what it is that he's doing. This chapter, it also gave us an example of what it means to be a righteous man, fully in covenant, fully attached to the promises of God. Two weeks ago, we examined the last story that we have of Lot. A man who is described as righteous, a man who is of the family of Abraham, but we saw that he was still a man of the world. He is a man of Sodom, living in the midst of Sodom, and completely ineffectual with his righteousness. Why? I think it's because he had become too much like Sodom. Not abandoned by God, but standing to lose everything but life itself when judgment comes near. Last week we saw the example of Abraham in the midst of a righteous nation a nation of integrity, if not a nation of covenant with God. And in that episode, we saw judgment coming from Abraham, and his judgment, his false judgment, his misjudgment, nearly wiped out an entire nation. But we recognize that Abraham's judgment was misplaced. Thus, this nation, who had integrity and had not done anything morally wrong, was still responsible for the breach of covenant that occurred. It took a person that was in covenant, a person who was righteous in God's eyes, to make a request before God on behalf of that nation with integrity, to intercede on their behalf. Regardless, we got to see a picture of the righteousness of the nations, which, as we examined it, we saw that it wasn't enough to save anyone from the curse of sin, regardless of that sin's source. So this week, I want to do something a bit different. In the past, I've pretended to a degree that I've not read ahead any, and our comparisons have been mostly with previous chapters. This week, I want to look forward a bit and take this chapter, chapter 21 of Genesis, and compare it with the next chapter, chapter 22. And I want to do this for a few reasons. The first reason is that next week, we have a completely different topic to talk about rather than comparing that passage with this one. And there's no way I could fit everything that I could say about 
Genesis 22 in one lesson. The second reason is that the five chapters of this Parsha and the one-year cycle form a chiasm that gives us a pointer for comparison. For those who don't know, a chiasm is a literary pattern in which things within a set of text are mirrored against each other. The first point mirrors the final point in some way. The second point mirrors the second to last, and so on, driving towards a center point that is the thematic center of the passage. This Parsha in the one-year cycle has five chapters in it. And these chapters are themselves chiastic in nature. In the first chapter, we have Abraham, the righteous one, the one who will teach his children diligently. And then in chapter 22, the final chapter, we have Abraham, the righteous one, who will give his children in obedience. These chapters are a comparison. They offer us an example of what righteousness and covenant look like. The second chapter in this Parsha mirrors this chapter. The family member of Abraham, who is recognized as blessed by God, for the mere fact that he is related to Abraham. Both chapters feature this family member being driven from his home and being forced to settle in a barren area. Two weeks ago, it was Lot. This week, it's Ishmael. The center being Abraham in the midst of Gerar from last week. The tables turned on Abraham, and Abraham himself was endangering his own covenant through a misjudgment, prejudice, for the sake of his life. He's trying to save his life from something that he thought that someone else would do. And the pagan nation themselves was acting in integrity and seeking to preserve covenant and life. This role reversal in the center teaches us a lot about God himself. And in this, it shows that he prefers one who he has a covenant with over one who is just a good person. And that can be really difficult for us to accept, that God would choose someone in covenant who's not behaving properly over people who are behaving properly but have no covenant. So when we reach the chapter of Sodom, we recognize that there was in fact a parallel of story occurring in the text that we spend a good time examining the comparison that was made between Abraham and Lot in those chapters. Remember, go back and listen to those two chapters. We compared Lot and the story of Abraham and we recognized that it was one story that was being told and there were key words within the text, key phrases that helped us to compare those two together. Well, this week, with the chiastic nature of the text in mind, I want to do the same thing, but because the one that it matches with is chapter 22, we're going to be looking forward to do this examination. But we're going to examine the seed of Abraham and the comparison that's made in the text between the son of the flesh and the son of the promise. There's a lot to cover in this chapter, and so I'm not going to get into huge chunks of the chapter today. Sarah's role in this chapter, we will examine that in greater depth in two weeks. The bit with Abraham at Beersheba, we'll touch on it, but we'll get a lot more into this because there's a very similar event that happens in the life of Isaac in five weeks from now. So those two particular events, we're going to kind of skip over today. We're not going to miss out on them. We're not going to not talk about them, but we're going to hold off on talking about those because the center part of this chapter and the comparison that it draws with chapter 22 is so significant that Paul talks about it in Galatians. And so we're going to dig into that and figure out just what it is that Paul's trying to say, as well as what it is that this chapter is trying to say. So let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 21, and then we will come back here and talk about it. Genesis 21. And Hashem visited Sarah as he had said, and Hashem did for Sarah as he had spoken. So Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, 
at the appointed time of which Elohim had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Yitzhak. And Abraham circumcised his son Yitzhak when he was eight days old, as Elohim had commanded him. And Abraham was one hundred years old when his son Yitzhak was born to him. And Sarah said, Elohim has made me laugh, and everyone who hears of it laughs with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Yitzhak was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Mitzrayim, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. So she said to Abraham, Drive out this female servant and her son, for the son of this female servant shall not inherit with my son, with Yitzhak. And the manner was very evil in the eyes of Abraham because of his son. But Elohim said to Abraham, Let it not be evil in your eyes because of the boy, and because of the female servant. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Yitzhak your seed is called. And of the son of the female servant I also make a nation, because he is your seed. And Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, which he gave to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, also the boy, and sent her away. And she left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs, and she went and sat down about a bowshot away. For she said, Let me not see the death of the boy. And she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And Elohim heard the voice of the boy, and the messenger of Elohim called to Hagar from the heavens, and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for Elohim has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Arise, lift up the boy, and hold him with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. And Elohim opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. And Elohim was with the boy, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Mitzrayim. And it came to be at that time that Abimelech and Pichol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, Elohim is with you in all that you do. And now swear to me by Elohim not to be untrue to me, to my offspring, or to my descendants. Do to me according to the loving kindness that I have done to you, and to the land which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I swear. And Abraham reproved Avimelech because of a well of water which Avimelech's servants had seized. And Avimelech said, I do not know who has done this deed. Neither did you inform me, nor did I hear until today. So Abraham took sheep and cattle and gave them to Avimelech. And the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Avimelech asked Abraham, What are these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, Take these seven ewe lambs from my hand to be my witness that I have dug this well. So he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Avimelech rose with Pichol and the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. And he planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of Hashem, the everlasting El. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines many days. All right, so... I said I wasn't going to say much about Sarah, and that's true. I'm not going to say a whole lot, but I am going to lay the framework by covering Sarah some. So at the very beginning of this chapter, we read of Sarah, and we read of her conceiving and bearing a son, and then we read of Isaac being weaned. And after Isaac is weaned, Ishmael then begins to mock Isaac. One thing that I haven't mentioned yet, but if you've listened to any other teacher in these chapters, is that Isaac's name means laughter. It can have a lot of different connotations and a lot of different forms to it. 
The name Isaac is derived from the word Sachak, which means to laugh, to mock, to jest, or to play. That's a huge range of meaning because there's a lot of inference based on circumstance that is built into that word. So in Genesis 19, Avraham laughed when God told him that he would have a son. And that laughter, as we read and consider in a context, it would seem to be a laughter of disbelieving happiness. I'm going to have a son? And then in Genesis 20, we read that Sarah laughed when God told Avraham once again that he would have a son. However, this laughter would seem to be a laughter of disbelief. <laughs> Am I going to bear at my age? In the early verses of this chapter, we get a picture of laughter from Sarah in verse 6. God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears of this will laugh with me. And once again, the context here may not be one of joyous laughter, but that's something we'll return to in two weeks. After that, in verse 9, we see that what Ishmael is doing to Isaac is he's laughing at him. And one gets the distinct impression that this form of laughter is not one of joy or playfulness, but rather one of shaming, mocking, scorning. In an honor-shame society, a mocking laugh is not a welcome event. Ishmael is treating Isaac poorly, and Sarah does not appreciate it. And so, she wishes to get rid of the source of her shame. Hagar, the woman who rose above her station and thought of herself as having more honor than her master, Sarah. The son who attempted to bring shame upon Isaac, on her son, the son of the promise, the heir of Abraham. Now the son of the foreign woman is trying to raise himself above her son, trying to put him down, trying to mock him and bring shame upon him. So she wants to get rid of them. And Abraham, Abraham doesn't like this idea. He does not want Ishmael to leave. He loves Ishmael. But God, on the other hand, tells Abraham that it's okay to send Ishmael away. And he says it in this way, don't worry about Ishmael. I'll take care of Ishmael. Why does he say that he'll take care of Ishmael? Because he is your seed, the seed of Avraham. And here's where the parallels to the next chapter begin. Both this chapter and the next chapter are speaking of the seed of Avraham. We've got Ishmael, the seed of the flesh, and Isaac, the seed of the promise. These two men, and, and there's two commands within these chapter to send the child away in different ways. With Ishmael, it's send him away into the wilderness. With Isaac, it's send him away into death. But in both chapters, we get the same response from Abraham. He obeys. He does what he is commanded to do, to send the children away. So in both this chapter and the next, we'll notice at the very beginning of the next chapter, it says that Abraham rose early in the morning in order to accomplish the deed that was set before him. This is a deed of placing the life and well-being of his sons in God's hands, both times. In this chapter, after Hagar is sent away, she continues on with her son. In the next chapter, as Abraham approaches the mountain, he sends the slaves away, and then he alone continues on with his son. This comparison of the slave woman and the seed of Abraham and the righteous man and the seed it really shouldn't be lost on us, because it wasn't lost on Paul. So, we'll get there in a little bit, but really, this is something that we've got to understand. So, where do each of these parties go in their travels? Well, Hagar and Ishmael, they go to the wilderness. 
and Avraham and Isaac, they go to the mountain. These places are both symbols that shouldn't be lost on us. We've discussed in the past the mountain as the place of being close to God, the place of communion, the place of relationship. But the wilderness we see here, and we'll see in Exodus, and the book of Numbers, and so on and so forth, that, and the temptation of Yeshua, and all throughout Scripture, the wilderness is a place of testing and trial. In other places, we'll find it to be a place of being out of favor with God. So what I find interesting in this comparison is that in chapter 22, the mountain becomes the place of testing for Avraham, who's already passed through the wilderness. And once the end of the line is reached in both stories, the boy is laid down and brought near to death. Ishmael through a lack of water, through an act of circumstance and the fallout from the unrighteous actions that occurred previously. Isaac then through the will of God, the will of Avraham, and in fact his own will, as we'll discover next week, Isaac was on board with what was happening. This act of obedience unto the point of death is an act of righteousness. And once the boy is laid down near death, it's the voice of God that calls to the parent from heaven and provides a means of escape through something that had not yet been previously seen. For Ishmael, it was an unseen well that was nearby and provides the sustenance that he needs to avoid dehydration. For Isaac, it's a ram that's caught in a nearby thick. A substitutionary sacrifice is provided. And in both cases, this salvation is brought about for a specific reason. For the sake of Abraham. In chapter 21, verse 13, we read, He will also become a great nation because he is your seed. Because he is your seed. In 22, verse 12, it says, Do not lay a hand on the boy for, remember that for, when it's there, we got to ask, what's it there for? I have seen that you have not withheld him from me. The boy is saved because Abraham did not withhold him. This is really significant. When both of the boys are spared because of Abraham's faithfulness, because of Abraham's covenant, they are spared not because of anything that's in themselves or inherent in themselves or any moral standing that they have, they're spared because of their connection to Avraham and because of Avraham's connection to the father. Not only is both sons spared, but then once they're spared, a blessing is pronounced over them from heaven. For Ishmael, it simply says, I will make a great nation of him. For Isaac, through Avraham, it's a restating of both of the previous blessings found in chapter 13, the dust of the earth, and chapter 15, the stars of the heaven. The heavens and the earth acting as a witness to Abraham of the promise that God had made to him. The story of chapter 22, it's over at this point, but the comparison in the narratives is not quite done. Because just after both of these events with the sons of Abraham, we then find Abraham making a deal or a covenant with a neighbor who is from the nations. And each of the negotiations then harkens back to the previous episode with the son. So, just after Ishmael is nearly dead in the wilderness and is delivered by a well of water, Avraham faces down a circumstance with a well of water being taken from him with Avimelech, the king of Gerar. So, just after Isaac is nearly killed on the altar, but at the last minute he's spared, Avraham is then forced to make a deal with his neighbors for a plot of land. Why? In order to bury his wife, the mother of Isaac. As you can see, the fact that these chapters are telling the similar story, once you start comparing these instances together, 
it becomes almost undeniable. Once again, we'll find that these similarities between these two will point us to a truth. So now we get to dig into the differences between these two to discover the truth that's being revealed here. But before we get there, let's return to where I began. On one side, we have Ishmael. He was not the heir of promise. He was not the son of faith. He found greatness, his honor in being the firstborn of Abraham, the eldest heir according to the ways of the world. The other, Isaac, the son of Sarah, the son of the barren woman, the son of covenant, the son of the bride of Abraham, he was the son of faith, the one promised and predestined to continue that covenant, the one through whom the promise would continue. One is cast out into the wilderness and sent into exile. The other is brought close and made into an heir. And in this, we catch a glimpse of what it is that Paul is speaking of in the book of Galatians. And Galatians is one of those books where Paul would seem to be saying that the Torah itself is completely done away with. We have no need to do it. We're saved through faith by grace, which is true. But when we steep it only there and we just stop at that, we miss a whole lot. So let's dig a little further into the book of Galatians and see what it can tell us about this chapter. So in the early church, the apostles faced a problem. There was a sect of Christianity there at the very beginning that began teaching that in order to enter the kingdom of God through Yeshua, one had to take on the flesh of Abraham. In other words, they had to become Jewish through ritual proselyte conversion. And this proselyte conversion took on the terminology of taking on the circumcision, using air quotes around that. A specific set of Christianity was teaching this, that without conversion of the flesh from Gentile to Jew, salvation wasn't possible. They said that one had to become a physical child of Abraham. The sect was known as the circumcision party, and we read of encounters that they had with the apostles all throughout the New Testament. We spoke of this in an earlier episode, but let's go back to that real quick. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was given the vision of the sheet descending from heaven with all sorts of animals on it. Well, Peter is shown that the vision has nothing to do with food, but rather with that all men are clean before God. And this is the first mention that we have of the circumcision party in the New Testament. And in verse 45, we read of their reaction to the news of that day. Acts 10.45, and it says, And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the nations also. They were astonished that the Holy Spirit was being poured out on those who were not physically the seed of Abraham. The tension with the circumcision party then continues as we read more of them in chapter 11, and then later in chapter 15 of Acts, we read this in Acts 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judah and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the practice of Moshe, you are unable to be saved. So a council is called, and a decision needs to be made. What exactly is it that God requires of someone before they can enter into the community? And this decision has nothing to do with what it is that a person must do to be saved, but rather it's simply what is the minimum requirement that we should impose upon people before they can enter into the assembly, the community of God. And so a decision is made in Acts chapter 15, and we read of it in verses 19 through 21. It says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the nations who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the defilement of idols, from sexual immorality, 
from what is strangled and from blood. Four. Oh, here we go. Another four. So that's what is the four there for? It's to connect it back to the previous section. So four from ancient generation, Moses has in every city, those proclaiming him being read in the congregations every Sabbath. The idea here is that to enter into the community and to come into the synagogue, to join in in the, the body of Messiah, take care of those four things first. You got to take care of those four things first. That's the minimum requirement for entry into the community. Because once they're in the community, they'll learn the rest. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those proclaiming him. They'll learn the rest when they get in community. Let's not prevent them from coming into community because they haven't done all that we think they should do. Because God has already demonstrated that they have been accepted by him. And we read that back in verses 8 through 9. If you're reading through Acts 15 straight through, it says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, as also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Cleansing their hearts by faith. The minimum requirement included the understanding that the new convert would learn of the expectations of God through Moses at the synagogues on the Sabbath. But God had cleansed their hearts because of their faith, not because of anything that they had done. He then brought them into community, and he begins a training program into how to love and how to be in covenant with him. Well, this decision apparently was not good enough for some, and this precipitated the writing of a full letter addressing this topic to the assembly in Galatia, and we call it the Book of Galatians. In Galatians 2, 11-13, we read, And when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was at fault. For before some came from Jacob, he was eating with the nations. But when they came, he began to withdraw and to separate himself in fear of those of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. The circumcision party began to infiltrate the church in Galatia, and they had convinced Peter and Barnabas to forsake fellowship with those who were coming out from the nations who hadn't yet engaged in proselyte conversion, but who had undergone a real heart conversion. Their heart had been circumcised, their flesh had not. The circumcision party was making salvation a thing that was obtained through racial means, through an effort made in the flesh and through bloodline. Peter, the one who had experienced the visions that the vision that Gentile believers were clean before God, was participating in this falsehood. It's no wonder Paul stood up to him. He was being a super hypocrite because he understood that they were clean. But in order to appease the circumcision party, he went along with the circumcision party in order to appease men. So the message of God was that from the beginning, righteousness is a matter of faith. The son of Abraham that carried on the covenant was not a son that was conceived under Abraham's own power in the flesh. In fact, Abraham was completely incapable of having a son under his own power. His wife was barren. He himself, in a symbolic way, had had his flesh cut away to reveal that the son that was going to come forth was not from himself. 
this was the miracle that came about not through the flesh or through any human action. This was the son that came about because of Abraham's faith and his obedience. The circumcision party had twisted the symbol and they had made it a requirement of entry rather than simply a symbol. They did not know that the promise of God is carried on through faith and not through the flesh. The flesh has nothing to do with entry into the covenant of Abraham. So in Galatians, Paul attacks this thought head on and he uses this story, the story of Abraham and Hagar, to make a point. Throughout his letter, Paul uses a phrase that's confusing when it's understood literally. And that phrase is works of the law. But that phrase is not speaking of keeping the Torah as it's, we read of it in other places. Works of the law is an idiom that was in use in, in Jewish sects in the first century. How do we know? Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a document that's been labeled as 4QMMT. It's also known by the titles of the Halakhic Letter or the Sectarian Manifesto. This document is a recounting of the requirements that the Qumran community had placed upon its members. And within it, the phrase works of the law is used to reference the keeping of these sectarian requirements and using them as your guiding principles. Not the Torah, not the law of God, but rather the tradition, the sectarian tradition that these men had created, their doctrinal statement, if you will. They used their doctrinal statement as their guiding principle rather than using the Bible itself. And the works of the law were walking out and living in the bounds of that doctrinal statement. Growing up, we were taught that we couldn't go to movie theaters. Why? Well, because if you go to a movie theater and someone sees you coming out, even if you saw a, an okay movie, they might think that you saw another movie. And so, therefore, the passage where it says, do not give even the impression of evil, well, that was how you accomplished this, is that you just didn't go to a theater at all. Same thing with playing cards. If someone sees you playing with playing cards, they might think that you're gambling. And then they will think that you are engaged in some sort of evil action, and it will damage your testimony with them. This was a sectarian requirement of the church or even just of my father's household. It was a doctrinal position that they believed made you right before God. That is not clearly spelled out in Scripture. It was their interpretation of Scripture that they set up as the defining line. It was their, so to speak, works of the law. So the thing is, is that in the first century, there was not only the one Torah as we think of it today. The word Torah simply meant instructions. And so this word is found used in many other contexts that have nothing to do with the five books of Moses. In fact, in Proverbs, we find several examples of this. Proverbs 1.8 says, My son, heed the discipline of your father and do not forsake the Torah of your mother, the instruction of your mother. Proverbs 3.1, My son, do not forget my Torah, being my personal Torah, and let your heart watch over my commands. Now, in my particular case, with the works of the law, if it was just my father's command that we not do that, then it was my duty to re respect that and to honor that. If it was a church command that was being imposed upon us, it was something that was a sectarian requirement, not a biblical requirement. But in the, in the first century, any instruction that was given by any authority 
it was seen as a Torah. It's a set of family instructions given to its children was the Torah, as we saw in those examples from Proverbs. The instructions of the Pharisees, or the oral Torahs, is referred to as Torah as well, as the Torah that God gave to Moses. And these sectarian instructions of any community were also referred to as Torah. And not every use of the word nomos, or law, in the New Testament is referring to the first five books of the Bible as we refer to it today. Today, we take the word nomos, and we say that it only refers to the Torah of Moses. But that's not the way that Paul would have used it. That's not the way his audience would have understood it. They would have understood that it was a form of instruction. There is, for example, an instruction, a Torah of sin and death. That's not the Torah of Moses. It's a Torah of sin and death. There's a Torah of righteousness. There's a Torah of sin. We see Paul use all of these throughout his letters. And so we have to be very careful that we don't just simply say five books of Moses, bam, and say that that is the definition for every use of the word nomos in the New Testament. And so the circumcision party, they were making up their own works of the Torah as a requirement that they were placing upon everyone who wished to be saved. But it wasn't a requirement. And we see this clearly in several places in Scripture, but I think one really good example of this is in Romans 3, 27-31. Without understanding this, that works of the law means a sectarian requirement, this passage can become completely nonsensical. And so, in an attempt to try to understand it and try to make it fit, we just throw, oh, the Torah of Moses, and then be done with it. When we read this with that understanding in mind, we'll actually see that in Romans 3, 27-31, Paul is referring to two different Torahs. So let's go through it. I'm going to provide some commentary in the midst of the reading, but just follow along. So starting in verse 27, where then is the boasting? Is it shut out? By what Torah? Okay, so what Torah? There are multiple, there are multiple Torahs, okay, right there. By which Torah? A Torah of works, and that's a Torah that requires a change of the flesh. No, but by the Torah of faith, and that's an instruction that is arrived at through faith. For we reckon that man is declared right by belief without works of Torah, those sectarian requirements. Man is declared right in his faith without sectarian doctrinal statements. Or is he the God of the Jews only, and not also of the nations? This is the works of the Torah that was being pushed by the circumcision party. Become Jewish in order to be in the family of God, because God was thought to be only the God of the Jews. But Paul is saying here, no, God is the God of all men. So yes, of the nations also, since it is one God who shall declare right the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the nations, through faith. Do we then nullify the Torah, the Torah of God, through faith? Let it not be. On the contrary, we establish the Torah being the Torah of God. You see how there's multiple Torahs at play in here? You've got the works of the Torah and the Torah of God right there back to back being compared by Paul in this. We must always remember that when Paul was writing, he was not writing his letters to us. He had a very specific audience that was dealing with very specific things in a very specific place at a very specific time. And we can't disconnect his words from any of these things, or we can make the Bible say whatever we want. And that is dangerous. To do that is to twist Paul's words and say something that they're not saying. 
So let's return to Galatians and move on to chapter 3, because in chapter 3, we see Paul use this phrase several times in succession. Chapter 3, verse 5 through 12, Is he then who is supplying the Spirit to you and working miracles among you, doing it by works of Torah, those sectarian requirements, or the certificate of proselyte conversion in this particular case, or by hearing of faith? Even so, Abraham did believe God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Know then that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Right there, those who are sons of faith are sons of Abraham. Faith makes you the seed of Abraham, and it puts you in that line along with Isaac. If you try to be a son of the flesh, you become the son like Ishmael, the one who's cast out into the wilderness. In the scripture, having foreseen that God would declare right the nations by faith, announced the good news to Abraham before saying, all of the nations shall be blessed in you. So Paul's saying that the gospel that God would declare all people's right was declared to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. So that those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham for the believer. For as many as are the works of Torah, those sectarian requirements, specifically in this case, more than likely that certificate of proselyte conversion, are under the curse. For it has been written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all that has been written in the book of the Torah to do them. Okay, so now he's talking about the book of the Torah. And that cursed is everyone who doesn't do what's written in the book of the Torah. If not keeping the Torah of God curses a person, how much more does it curse a person who puts themselves under even stricter requirements that he can't even hope to keep? And that no one is declared right by the Torah before God. And that's a fact that as we continue through the Torah in our study, we're going to see, never was the Torah set up as a redemptive system. Not once was it set up as a redemptive system. For it is clear, for the righteous shall live by faith, and the Torah is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So the Torah itself, it says it's not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Now we usually understand that to be that the man who does the Torah, you're going to live by that Torah, and that's going to be your law, and you're going to be rigidly stuck to that. But if we actually look at where that's being quoted from, we'll find that the man who does the works of the Torah will gain life by them, will gain blessing by them. So you can see exactly just how complicated Galatians really is. It's not just a simple cut and dried, oh, don't keep the law. That's way too simplistic for what Paul's trying to speak into this congregation that's facing a very political, almost a coup, a very political takeover of their faith. So the works of the Torah, in quotes, are those who seek to gain entry into the family of Abraham through their works, those who count on their flesh as being able to gain them a relationship with God. It's the other side of Avimelech, the king with integrity, but not in covenant. His actions were right in the flesh. He did the right fleshly things, but he didn't have the faith. And without the faith, there's no covenant. And without the covenant, there's no way God can forgive him. This is Ishmael. He's the one who thought that his parentage and his status and his bloodline would gain him the promise. He took his flesh status for granted, and he thought that it created within himself a status that could not be lost. He used that status then as a bludgeon and a reason to shame Isaac, the son of promise. 
And this was unfortunately exactly what Peter was doing in Galatians 2 that Paul corrected him for. He was using his status as a natural son of Abraham as a bludgeon for those who were of the nations. Those who, to begin with, didn't necessarily feel like they belonged. But sons of Abraham, sons of the promise, are truly sons in the manner of Isaac. They are those who are of the faith of the seed of Abraham. Those who rely on their adherence to some sort of doctrinal or sectarian standard of the flesh, they're under a curse. I would, I would even go so far as to say those who rely on a doctrinal standard of some sort of intellectual assent that you have to think the right thing, they too are under a curse. For it's written in Scripture that no one is declared right before God through the Torah, but rather through faith. And in fact, we see that all the way back, Habakkuk 2.4, See, he whose being is not upright in him is puffed up, but the righteous one lives by his faithfulness. He lives by his faith. Genesis 15.6, And he believed in Hashem, and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. The Torah itself isn't of faith, but the Torah does bring life. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall guard my laws and my judgments, which a man does and lives by them. I am Hashem. So in Galatians, Paul then continues on into chapter 4, and here he says some things that are very confusing and that we really should not misunderstand. In Galatians 4, 23-23, it says, For it has been written that Abraham had two sons, one by a female servant, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the female servant was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. So Paul is introducing this dichotomy of Genesis 21 and 22 and the lesson that we can learn from these two characters. The following verse is so very vital to read and to just sit and meditate on for a moment. In Galatians 4, verse 24, he says, For this is allegorical, for there are two covenants, one indeed from Mount Sinai, which brings forth slavery, which is Hagar. What? The covenant of Sinai brought slavery? Let's slow down and think about that for a second. Okay, first of all, for the one and only time in all of our New Testament Pauline writings, Paul points out, I'm being very allegorical here. I'm being metaphorical. I'm providing a symbolic look back on this story. Okay? What Paul says here as a symbol does not override what Genesis and the rest of scriptures has to say about these topics. I've heard a lot of teachings where they say that in essence, God took Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, which is slavery like the Egyptian slavery. Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Because if that's what Paul's saying, then God lied. Exodus 6, 6-7, it says, Say therefore to the children of Israel, I am Hashem, and I shall bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and shall deliver you from their enslaving, and I shall redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and shall take you as my people, and I shall be your God, and you shall know that I am Hashem your God, who is bringing you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. In Exodus 20, verse 2, it says, I am Hashem your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So if Paul is saying that Mount Sinai, the covenant that was cut there, is in fact slavery, then God lied. And God can't lie. If God said, I took Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and brought Israel to myself, 
in order to put them into slavery again. That interpretation of Paul makes zero sense when you compare it to what God himself declares in those earlier passages and in so many other places. Those two verses in Exodus are only a small sampling of how God speaks of bringing them out of slavery and actually into freedom. So what Paul is teaching here isn't a physical truth. It's a symbol that we can look to and understand a difference between being a son of the flesh and a son of the promise. So let's not confuse it as Paul overturning everything that's been said by God before. So Ishmael was brought forth as a son of the flesh, and in the end he was cast out and it was declared that he would not inherit. Isaac was brought forth from the promise of God. Isaac inherited the promise. So Mount Sinai, in the same way, while it was not in truth of the flesh, after all, the Torah is spiritual, while it may not be of faith, the Torah is itself spiritual, as Paul says in Romans 7.14. But those of the circumcision were treating the Torah as if it were a fleshly thing, as if it were simple obedience to the letter that was what brought acceptance before God. So Paul is using the prejudices of his audience that he is addressing in this allegory. He's not creating new doctrine about what Sinai really meant. And that's one of the reasons that the context is so vitally important. It is because scripture was not written to us. Paul's letters were written to a specific people with specific issues. And so part of the context of the letter is the audience it was written to. I am not the direct audience of this letter, and neither are you or anyone else who's alive today. It was that first century church in Galatia that was the audience of this letter. And if we had divorced the letter from the audience, we can make it say whatever we want. But only one interpretation is consistent with all of Scripture, including Genesis 21. So how do we know that this is what Paul was speaking of? Well, he then takes Hagar and Sinai and compares them to Jerusalem, which had come under the slavery of the rabbinical and Roman oppression. So what is this saying? Sinai is outside of the promised land, and as such, it left people in their slavery of sin. And just as this early Jerusalem is outside of the promise of the eternal life and Messiah and the heavenly kingdom that is to come down on earth, so too the Jerusalem above and the heavenly kingdom will descend to earth one day, and it's the equivalent, metaphorically and symbolically, to our own inclusion in the promise of Abraham and being included into his family as his seed. I hope that explanation helps, because this passage in Galatians is one that is warped to say things that it was never intended to say. God did not take his people out of slavery only to take them back into slavery. That was not what he did. Being brought to Mount Sinai didn't change their status of slavery to sin slavery to fleshly desires. That's the point Paul is making here. He's drawing that distinction between the son of the flesh who just thinks I am got it because of who I am. So there's something inherent in me that recommends me before God. That's not what scripture describes as a person in righteous covenant. On the other side, you've got the son of the spirit, the son of the promise, the son of faith. The one that Abraham had to believe in. The one that he himself had to believe that God had his own interest in mind and that God would deliver his promise in the very next chapter. 
the flesh and children of the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It takes that child of promise to be an heir. It takes a member of the covenants of God in spirit to inherit the kingdom of God. So in this story, that person is symbolized in Isaac, the promised son, the impossible child, the one, the only, the beloved. And guess what? You too can be part of it. If you are of Messiah, you are part of it. And so we too must learn what it means to be a child of the Spirit, because it is only through this that we can hope to find life. In fact, it is incumbent upon us that we do so as part of the process of seeking life. So let's try to become children of the Spirit. Let's work, not working in the flesh, but let's work to be obedient to God. Because once you're of the faith and you believe God and you love Him, you obey. And that's what we're going to see next week, is that the child of faith obeys regardless of what's asked. So I pray that you have a, a good week this week and that you think on these things, that you think on this distinction between being a child of the flesh and the child of the promise. And go read Paul. Read all that he says on that. He covers this idea, this topic of that dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit so many different places. And I hope what I've said today will help you to see a little bit clearer what it is that he's talking about. So as you go through this week and in all that you do, remember, Deresh Chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.